from 89.7 WUWM. Milwaukee's NPR, this is Lake Effect. I'm Joy Powers. Today we'll explore how overturning Roe v. Wade is making it harder to attract physicians to Wisconsin. Then we'll hear about the local battle over daylight saving time. So in general, the controversy over daylight saving in the the 1920s is an urban-rural split, and it has some interesting details for how it works out in Wisconsin. Plus, we'll tell you about Rooted MKE, a BIPOC children's bookstore and literacy center in Milwaukee. The bookstore supports a passion for literacy and wanting to expose kids and families to a wide range of stories that they don't always get a chance to see when you go to a more traditional bookstore. All of that is coming up on Lake Effect. But first, here are today's headlines. This is Lake Effect from 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. I'm Joy Powers, and thank you so much for joining us. Wisconsin's criminal abortion law only allows for an abortion procedure to save the life of a pregnant person. For physicians, it's difficult to know where the line is between what's considered life-saving and what's not. And doctors could face criminal charges should they choose to provide a patient an abortion. Wisconsin is already facing a shortage of OBGYNs. And due to its abortion law, experts fear the state will have difficulty attracting new physicians and training those who come here for medical school. Dr. Laura Jacques is an assistant professor of obstetrics and gynecology at UW-Madison. She joined me in November to talk about how abortion care is used for patients and how failing to provide this training could impact medical care in the state. So I think there's this common misconception that abortion is really just elective abortions, uh, where a person is choosing to terminate a pregnancy. But this is, of course, a medical procedure that has many other applications. What are some of the situations outside of an elective abortion where an abortion would be performed? The word abortion really just means the ending of a pregnancy. And so in the medical language, abortion also represents Spontaneous abortion, which is miscarriage, ectopic pregnancy, which is a pregnancy that grows outside of the uterine cavity, most commonly in the fallopian tube, as well as induced abortions, which are procedures where we are intervening to interrupt a pregnancy. And so there's a lot of gray area when it comes to what is an abortion, what the media or the lay public understands as abortion is sort of different than what is understood in the medical literature. There are, of course, abortions that are a result of rape. That is more common, I think, than many people think. There are abortions that are done for the health of the pregnant person. There are many conditions which a pregnancy makes that condition worse over the course of a pregnancy. So people who have issues with high blood pressure, people who have issues with their kidneys, a pregnancy heightens the risk of those diseases to the person who's carrying the pregnancy. And so some people are unable to continue a pregnancy that maybe was even desired as a result of the impact that it will have on their their underlying healthcare conditions. And then there are things that come up 
during the pregnancy that weren't known before. So sometimes there are findings on ultrasound of fetal anomalies. Uh, so issues with the development of the fetus that may not be compatible with survival of the fetus. And then there's issues specific to pregnancy that can impact the health of the mother too, the way that the placenta implants. Um, there can be malplacentation where that puts the pregnant person at risk for pregnancy specific complications, or sometimes there are pregnancy specific conditions like preeclampsia, um, where the pregnancy itself poses and causes um, healthcare risk to the pregnant patient. So it seems like there are a lot of situations in which an abortion would be applied or used. Uh, when we think about OBGYN training, how important is understanding and learning about this kind of care? Yeah. So we know this from the literature. We've talked to OBGYN trainees and family medicine trainees and people who train in programs where they receive abortion education state that they feel more comfortable managing miscarriage when they finish. There's an incredible amount of overlap between pregnancy care for abortion and termination of pregnancy and also with early pregnancy loss and miscarriage. And the way that we manage those two conditions medically um, are really similar. And so people who have more experience are going to feel more competent in those. And, and it's a really prevalent condition. So the miscarriage rate in the general population is about one in five pregnancies. So it's a, a common condition that practitioners are going to face when they're out of residency. And so having the most robust skill set that they can will better prepare them to take care of people. So about 20% of all pregnancies? Yep. 20% of all pregnancies end in miscarriage. What are some of the complications that can happen if you don't feel confident in this kind of training and you are dealing with someone who needs this kind of care? You know, one of the most common things is if you are a patient and you live in a setting where your provider doesn't feel comfortable, then they will refer you elsewhere. So then you have to travel in order to receive the health care that you need to a community or a hospital system that you feel less comfortable in. And that can be really stressful for people that are usually already going through a hard time. One of the more common settings that that would come up um, would be a second trimester pregnancy loss. So a pregnancy that might end after 14 weeks gestation. There are a small number of providers who feel comfortable managing that care during that gestational age. And so if you don't get that training in residency, then you would need to refer that patient to a center that is able to take care of that patient. And we receive those consults all the time at um, the University of Wisconsin. And it is hard on patients because, you know, sometimes they have to travel an hour or two hours in order to receive care. And it's in a setting where they're already feeling oftentimes very vulnerable. They're grieving because they've just lost a pregnancy. And so then to have to travel to a city and a, a system that they're not familiar with and not be able to be cared for by their doctor, who they know, who they have a relationship with, that they feel comfortable with, can be really difficult for them. 
obviously there's also the acute situations where you have somebody who comes in who might be bleeding after a first trimester miscarriage or have some past some of the pregnancy tests, but uh, pregnancy, but some of the pregnancy is still inside and that can lead to complications like infection and, and those are less common. So it's really important when you have these more acute situations where the patient is at more risk and they happen less commonly to have had the training in your residency where you've seen those things frequently and you know how to manage them so that you can help that patient right away, right in front of you. And if you don't have that training to to rely on, then again, you'll have to call or transfer the patient and that can lead to all kinds of harm to the patient. I mean, it sounds like a big delay in care for a patient who is facing an immediate risk. Yeah. So there's those people that don't face immediate risk, but need to be transferred out. And that comes with all the costs and the barriers that it takes to transport somebody from one part of the state to another, and then just the emotional toll that that would take. And then the, the other side of that is the people who need care immediately and are in a system or with a provider that maybe doesn't have the skill set to be able to provide that care. So for example, like one of the most common is a dilation and evacuation of the uterus. So in the second trimester of pregnancy, if there is bleeding, for example, or infection and the patient comes in and they they need the pregnancy to be ended, maybe it's already a fetal demise, um, but they need the uterus to be emptied in order to stop the bleeding or to cure the infection. The fastest, safest way to do that is a dilation and evacuation, which is a surgical emptying of the uterus. And there are very few providers that know that skill in our state um, and even nationally. And there will be even fewer now that we don't have that training available um, as routinely as part of residency. And so the options for managing that patient, if you can't do a dilation and evacuation, would be a labor induction, um, which takes longer and has higher risk associated with it or um, a hysterotomy, which is an actual surgical incision in the patient's abdomen, like a C-section, and then an incision in the uterus, which is um, significantly more morbid for the patient than a dilation and evacuation. Just to clarify here, I think some people hear a variety of these technical terms and the, the, the kind of processes, and they they kind of forget that that is also an abortion. But what we're talking about, these are abortions. Looking at the language of Wisconsin's law, so in the post-Dobbs landscape, Wisconsin is one of the strictest criminal abortion laws in the country. It lacks a lot of clarity. I think probably much of what you're talking about, these are procedures that really didn't come into common use until after 1849. How does this law impact your ability to do your work? So I think when people think about this law, they're thinking primarily about elective abortions and and they're not thinking about how this law can impact all of obstetrical and gynecological care. And I don't say that to mean that elective abortions are any less important, but I think that people focus on that and they're not thinking about the impact of the language on how we practice all of general obstetrics and gynecology myself, my partners, my colleagues around the state are in constant conversation about what is admissible, what is permissible under the law in the state of Wisconsin, even with things, very common procedures like management of miscarriage. People are worried about 
When is it certain enough that the pregnancy is failing that they can intervene? People think about this in the context of ectopic pregnancy. When is the diagnosis that is an ectopic pregnancy certain enough that they can intervene? They think about this in the context of more rare, but more risky second trimester situations where the pregnancy is directly impacting the health of the pregnant person. And when can they intervene and can they intervene to help that person? Or does that um, patient need to make the trip to Minnesota or Illinois? You know, as somebody who works teaching future physicians, is this impacting the students who actually want to come to Wisconsin to learn? What, what could this mean for our ability to attract physicians who can do these, as you said, often necessary and, and complicated procedures? Yes. So thank you for asking that question. This is a huge thing that I think people are not focusing enough on. And I just was looking this morning. So part of my role is um, I direct medical student education for our department. So I mentor all of the medical students who are planning to match into obstetrics and gynecology. And these students actually put out through the beauty of social media, there's a a nationwide website where students have a big spreadsheet where they compare different programs and attributes and talk about the process of applying to OBGYN residencies. And this year, I just saw this morning for the first time, there's a tab called Row, and they are looking at whether or not programs are able to provide abortion training. And they are also specifically asking how programs that are in states like ours, like in Wisconsin, able to compensate for the loss of that training if they're not able to provide that. There is no question that this is on the minds of students, and that's because they recognize the importance of the training in their future ability to help their patients. Even if they don't plan to provide elective abortion care or induced abortion care as a a physician, they know that that training is something that they need to be a well-rounded, competent OBGYN, and they are valuing that and looking at that very critically. In addition to just the training, many students are also thinking about Dr. Laura Jacques is an assistant professor of obstetrics and gynecology at UW-Madison. We spoke in November. At wuwm.com, you can find more of our coverage on Wisconsin's criminal abortion law. From Milwaukee's NPR, this is Capital Notes. We break down the big political news affecting Wisconsin. I'm Mayan Silver, speaking with J.R. Ross, editor of WisPolitics.com. He provides a roundup of the Wisconsin developments you need to know. Here's our latest conversation. Hi, J.R., good to be with you. Hey, thanks for having me around. (laughs) Okay, so I know we've talked quite a bit about the Wisconsin budget in the past, but I wanted to start with a refresher for those who might not be too familiar with it. First of all, how is, is the budget passed? So Governor Evers proposed um, his two-year budget in mid-February. We are now going through the joint finance process. And how that works is the committee will have four public hearings around the state starting in early April. Um, They will also have some agency heads at least come in and testify about specific areas of the budget uh, in the Capitol. After they get through that process, they begin to move on to uh, executive sessions. They start voting on the budget. They basically work line by line. Um, the first action we anticipate is that they will have a, 
a rather long motion that will strip what is in their minds policy from governors out of the budget. And then they'll start basically off of current law and build their version kind of line by line. Uh, now, as a process plays out, it's not like going to ignore what Evers proposed. They'll still have that kind of as an option, but we're expecting them to push aside much what the governor wanted and really focus on what they think should be in the budget. The big questions I have in this process are how are Governor Evers and Republican leaders, Robin Voss, the Assembly Speaker, and Devin Lemonhue, the Senate Majority Leader, how are they going to work together uh, during this process? The last two times that, that the governor to his budget did not do a whole lot of working with Republican leaders. This one seems a little bit different. They've been meeting and talking. It's like they both realize they need each other to get something significant done because there's a lot of money laying around. Um, so we're kind, of, we're kind of interested to see how it plays out and how the governor works with these guys after they kind of worked against each other the last two go-rounds. And for those who might not have been following this year or previous years, how does the budget affect policy in Wisconsin? Well, the budget is one bill that kind of has to pass, um, and it can include any it includes everything from spending on schools to medical assistance, to which includes Badger Care, to aid of local governments. I mean, it kind of is all-encompassing. Now, if the budget doesn't pass, we just kind of keep going as is with current law. The problem, of course, with that is that uh, inflation is driving up costs. So if you are a school district, for example, and you got X dollars from the state in this current budget, your costs are going up. That X dollars are probably not going to cut it um, the next two years. So you're looking for an increase, something to help you with, deal with what's going on. Now, policy-wise, you know, there's the option to put policy in the budget. They can do all kinds of things. You know, whatever policy they want can go in there. But uh, the question is, what will they put in? Uh, Republicans have balked at the policies that Governor Evers has wanted in past budgets and taken it out. Uh, but I've been watching a lot of budgets for a long time. Policies in the eye of the beholder, we always say in the Capitol. So it, to one person is a fiscal fiscal item, it's to another person pure, pure policy. So we'll see what Republicans put in. What's also interesting about that question is the governors in Wisconsin have one of those powerful veto pens in the country. They can use it to cross out, for example, a word um, in a sentence or, or bits of sentences in a spending bill. Okay, They can only do that if there's spending in the bill. So if you put policy in the budget, for example, that is a real issue for Republicans because you open the door to government even reworking that policy language, this veto pen. So you might see with this budget that's unique is trailer bills that would include the policy to affect the money put in the budget. So, for example, with, let's say, the brewers, right? Uh, Governors has talked about putting uh, state money into the stadium district overseas, the brewers' uh, American family field. Um, might the money be in the budget, but the policy, the language of how it would work, be in a separate bill to prevent Evers from rearranging what Republicans want? That's something to watch. I want to get into the Brewers' money with you in a little bit, but first of all, you mentioned the Joint Finance Committee is going to hold public hearings on the budget around the state starting April 5th. What kind of impact do these public hearings have? A lot of times, honestly, not a whole lot. There have been some ex uh, exceptions that that, though. I can remember once uh, some years ago, there's a program called IRIS. It is a program that helps people who have physical challenges remain in their homes. Um, otherwise, they'd be going to, you know, assisted care facilities. Uh, then Governor Scott Walker was talking about reducing funding for that program. There were a parade of people who have a number of health challenges who came into the Capitol at the public hearing that they had and said, look, um, if you do this, I'll be forced out of my home. 
you will change my life dramatically. And I remember lawmakers kind of going, whoa, we really hadn't anticipated this kind of a, uh, an impact from this program. It's one of the few times I can remember my many years of doing this that I really saw a change from the public hearings. A lot of times these hearings become uh, somewhat repetitive, you know, the same things you hear over and over again about school funding or various issues. So they often don't really impact lawmakers in a dramatic way. But that IRIS program, the people on it, that's one example I can remember of it really changed the trajectory of a budget because of that public testimony. You mentioned policy as something that could be in the budget, something that Republicans could leave in there or put in trailer bills. There's been a lot of talk around the country about bills that are against drag story time or children's story hours. Do you foresee things like that being hot button issues in Wisconsin as well? No. Uh, I mean, there could be a chance it'll be introduced, but Republicans are taking a much different approach this session to uh, bills in the last session. You know, last session, Governor was up for re-election after his first four-year term. There was an effort by Republicans to kind of put hot, you know, red meat bills on his desk, uh, get him to veto them and say, hey, look, you know, this guy's against A, B, and C. And he vetoed those bills. He set a record, actually, I believe, for most bills vetoed in a two-year period and still won. So Republicans realize, okay, he's going to be here for four more years. How do we work with this guy or at least not waste our time sending him bills that aren't going to get done? Now, it's not to say there won't be any bills vetoed this session or they won't send him some hot topics, you know, to try and put people record about it. But I'm just not seeing the same appetite so far from Republicans to like, okay, let's have a lot of pointless fights just to make a point. What can we actually get done this session that might actually be good for us that the governor can, you know, sign? I see. So one of the things that... You know, it seems like both sides can agree on is baseball, but that's really not even the case. Um, we've got Governor Evers proposing to spend nearly $300 million in taxpayer money on improvements to the Brewers Stadium to keep the team here through 2043. Assembly Speaker Robin Voss says that the plan is likely dead and they can come up with a better deal. Can you talk about the politics there? Sure. There are a couple of things. I mean, what Robin Voss said was not really surprised that people have been following this topic. Um, the day that Governor Evers announced his proposal, which is basically putting a bunch of money up front for the stadium board that oversees uh, the field, um, they would then invest that money, use the proceeds off those investments to pay for improvements over like a two-plus decade period. You know, people are like, okay, look, um, Evers is basically getting the ball rolling, but Republican lawmakers will not go along with what he wants as is. They're going to have to put their own imprint on that proposal. So what I'm watching is what does this possible deal look like? Now, there are definitely Republicans who do not want to see a deal for the Brewer Stadium. They feel like, hey, why should we be using state money for a stadium located in Milwaukee? Uh, my constituents, they'll tell me, are having a hard time seeing how that's a good deal for us. The flip side is the way it was structured when it was built was that, you know, sales tax in the five county area was used to construct much of the ballpark and fund improvements, maintenance, that kind of thing. Um, the stadium district board has a contract in which essentially state owns most of the field. And there is a requirement that this board cover these improvements, these maintenance costs. If we don't do that, we could get sued possibly, some people argue to me. So that's been interesting to watch how that plays out. There's some stakes there. So I'm getting the feeling that Republicans begrudgingly possibly will do something about the brewers. The question is what and how is it different from what Evers wanted? Like, for example, I would bet you that Republicans will insist on a longer lease from the Brewers than what 
Governor Evers got. If nothing else, he can argue, hey, we got a better deal for taxpayers, right? So it's kind of like this feeling, okay, something will get done. The question is what, and will it be in a standalone bill or in the budget? Again, like we talked before, if it's in the budget, there's spending. The governor can rework it with his partial veto pen. If it's not in the budget, standalone bill, well, then you have to get Republicans on board who may not care for it. If it's in the budget, at least they can go, okay, look, I like tax cut A and this thing over here so I can okay, swallow this brewer's deal to get what I really want, which is you know these tax cuts. Standalone bill may not get that incentive to vote for. You may have to get Democrats on board. And if you have to rely on the minority party to pass anything, you empower the minority party to ask for changes. So there's, there's ups, and, ups and downs for both approaches. Again, like, I just get the impression there's going to be something done at the end. The question is, what's it look like and how different is it what Evers proposed? I see. Okay, it's pretty complicated, but it sounds like there's a lot of avenues to potentially keep the brewers here. I'm wondering if there are tax incentives for people who don't follow baseball, potentially. <laughs> Well, you know, the argument is that if the brewers aren't here, then you're going to lose, for example, I mean, brewers, players pay state income tax, right? There's sales tax off of the stadium being there because there are, you know, concessions and things like that. If those things go away, the state, you could argue, would lose money. So that's the question. Is there an investment that makes sense where you're not losing money because a team were to move? At the same time, you know, again, the argument from outstate lawmakers is, okay, why would we put... $290 $290 million in money up front, state taxpayer dollars money up front into this deal that makes people a little bit kind of like, ah, not sure this is what I really want in terms of coming to Milwaukee and the Brewers. Well, hopefully it's not three strikes on this. <laughs> uh, okay. Well, thanks for the insights, JR, and thank you again for joining me on Capital Notes. Have a great day. WUWM's Mayan Silver speaks with J.R. Ross from WIS Politics every Monday for Capital Notes. You can find more information about the April election, the candidates, and how to vote at wuwm.com slash voter guide. And did you know you can listen to Lake Effect as a podcast? Search for Lake Effect wherever you get your podcasts to download and listen on demand. You can also follow WUWM on Instagram where you'll find videos and pictures from news stories and Lake Effect interviews. Are you feeling a little groggy today? Daylight saving can mess up our body clocks. So why do we set the clocks forward in spring? We'll look at the history of daylight saving coming up on Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. Listening to Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM. I'm Joy Powers. Every year we set our clocks forward an hour in spring, then fall back one hour in the autumn. And it can feel like in the days that follow, our internal clocks are all messed up. But it wasn't always this way, and it doesn't have to be. Last year, the U.S. Senate passed the Sunshine Protection Act. This bill would make daylight saving time the new permanent standard time, so we no longer need to spring forward or fall back. 
That bill stalled in the House, and this past weekend, we once again observed daylight saving. When daylight saving time was first nationally enacted after World War I, Wisconsinites were divided on observing it. To learn more about this history, Lake Effect's Mallory Chang spoke with Amanda Seligman, a professor of history and urban studies at UW-Milwaukee. Tell me a bit about the history of daylight saving time. Where did the idea to fall back an hour in the autumn and then move forward an hour in the spring generally come from? Yeah, that's the key of what daylight saving is, right? But in order to understand daylight savings, first you have to understand why we have standard time. So for most of human history, people just relied on the sun to tell time because we were humans who lived outside a lot. Eventually, around the 13th century, clocks started to be invented and people began to set the time more systematically in Europe, at least, to their watches or their clocks, but they were still set in accordance with what the sun said at a given moment. You know, they wanted noon to be when the sun was directly overhead. So people had a strong sense of hourly time, if you will, but what they called it was all locally defined. That began to change in the 19th century when standard time began to originate and it came into being first in the United Kingdom. And that's why when we sort of measure time around the planet, we're measuring from the Greenwich mean time um, from that meridian. The way we got standard time in the United States was actually because of railroads. So the trains were moving across the continent in the 19th century, and they began to have some problems with delivery and coordinating schedules. And so eventually they arrived at a process by which they decided on four time zones with a couple goals. One is they wanted to avoid train crashes. And the other goal was to make sure that people and goods arrived at their destinations at the times that they expected to. So railroads basically adopted their own time system in the 19th century. The railroads began to coordinate and decided that November 18th, 1883, would be the time when the trains across the country and also in Canada adopted standard time. Those are the four continental time zones that we're used to. And in just a year, they sort of figured out how it worked. And then the U.S. government in the next year, in 1884, also adopted standard time. But that didn't mean that they adopted standard time for everyone in the United States. That meant they adopted standard time for government functions. Instead of everybody adopting it, then cities around the country decided what they wanted to do. Did they want to follow government standard time or did they want to just set their own time? All of that as a background to where did daylight saving time come from. How did the idea for daylight saving, my brain is like daylight savings with the S, so like no Midwest mind, it's daylight saving time. How did that concept come up where it became a nationwide practice? Yeah. So again, there's a a long story about this, that this time we're going to go to Europe rather than to the 19th century. You know, historians are kind of crazy about time and place in that way. We just travel everywhere. Benjamin Franklin had an idea for that sort of the precedent of for daylight saving time. He wrote a satirical essay, basically recommending that Parisians could use fewer candles if they would just wake up earlier in the morning. Um, And sometimes people take that essay as a precedent for daylight saving. It's really proposed in a 1908 book by an English named William Willett, and he wrote a book called Waste of Daylight, which I think gets at his opinion. That sort of spread the idea, and there was a lot of work in England for the next six six or seven years trying to get a daylight saving bill passed, but it didn't pass. Instead, what happened is that during World War I, 
Germany actually passed daylight saving as a way of saving fuel, because the, if there was more light in the evening, then their people would use less gas and electricity. And that not only was thought to save fuel, but also was sort of propaganda to, get, to unite the German people on their side. And then the, the your other European countries the next year saw what the Germans had done. were like, oh, we'd better do that, too. And then two years later, in 1918, the United States government also made daylight saving a national mandate. And again, it was part of that war crime propaganda, save fuel, help win the war. So daylight saving is first tried in the United States in 1918, but it doesn't last. It's controversial and it's not permanent. What was the initial reaction to this concept here in Wisconsin? Did Wisconsinites at that time like the idea of falling back an hour in the autumn and then moving forward again in the spring? Yeah, so daylight savings was really very controversial, actually. So, and it was particularly opposed by farmers because it really was very difficult to adapt plants and animals, in particular milk cattle, to a shifting time. So there's this whole struggle right after World War I in which there's a debate about having national daylight savings continue because some people really liked it and other people didn't really like it. What happened was that twice after the war, Congress passed a bill influenced by farmers that prohibited using daylight savings. Because remember, it's a very much a rural nation. We're just switching to an urban nation in 1920. The president actually vetoed that prohibition. And then the Congress overrode the veto. So it was a really strong opposition to continuing daylight saving. In addition to like the dairy farmers who didn't want to have to adapt the cattle, um, it was difficult for dairymen because they would have to get up earlier and try to coordinate their trains and the, the trucks with the earlier milk. It was just a big mess for them. There were some people who didn't like that meddling with what they saw as God's time. And the people who were opposed to God's time, I think, didn't quite remember that they were actually on railroad time. <laughs> but people in the cities enjoyed having, who are industrial workers, enjoyed having that evening recreation available to them. So in general, the controversy over daylight saving in the, the 1920s is an urban-rural split. And it has some interesting details for how it works out in Wisconsin. That's so interesting because in my public school education, I've always been told that, oh, we fall back an hour and go forward an hour in the, in the autumn and spring because of the farmers, because it gives them more daytime. And I find that so interesting that initially farmers didn't want it. One of the documents, the primary documents that you saw and you found of like a summary of reasons why employees did not like daylight saving time, where children lose the sleep of time, they can't go to sleep before dark, or my wife doesn't like the time change or we get a loss of an hour asleep in the cool of the morning. And now on the other side of it, we talked a bit about farmers and we talked a bit about folks who live in rural areas. What about in a city like here in Milwaukee? Did most people living in the city in urban areas like the idea of daylight saving time in opposition to what rural farmers were saying? Well, so a lot of workers did like it. And so in Milwaukee, it seems like the use of the parks went up in the evenings in the summertime for the short time that there was daylight saving in Milwaukee. When it was put to vote, Milwaukee workers seemed to support having daylight savings. But there were some variations. Like so mothers, as you mentioned, were having a hard time with daylight savings. They wanted to get their kids to bed by eight o'clock and it was still light out. They argued that it would be hard to get their kids to go to sleep when the light was out. And they were like, and the kids would be like, oh, we still want to go out and play. 
And also movie theater owners were kind of opposed to daylight savings. They also argued that they lost business because people were going to the parks instead. And there were short, like a shorter window between when it actually got dark and people wanted to go to the movies. And But the Federated Trade Council was really concerned that the effort to impose daylight savings was a way of undermining the eight-hour day that the labor movement had worked so hard for and had shed blood over just a few years prior. So even the workers were a little bit split. But by and large, there was in Milwaukee more support for daylight savings than there was opposition. But again, it was one of these really complicated political stories. Most folks liked it. And there was an active campaign run for daylight saving leading up to a vote in 1921 by the City Club of Milwaukee. The City Club was a group of businessmen who sort of were leading citizens in Milwaukee, and they did all kinds of things that they thought would be in the interest of the city. And so one of the things they decided would be good would be to have daylight savings, like created a daylight saving committee. They did really careful research about what was going on nationally and locally, and they tried to get a referendum on the ballot. I was particularly interested as I was looking at this research about Daniel Hone, who was the mayor of Milwaukee this time. As you know, he was the longstanding socialist mayor of Milwaukee in the first half of the 20th century. And I wondered what his opinions were on daylight savings, but he was, he was almost nowhere in the records until I finally found this quote from him. His view is what is good for working men is good for Milwaukee. And reflecting on this history of the fight for or against daylight saving time and where our culture around time is like now, what can we learn now about our relationship to time, Amanda, as a historian? For me, this conversation reminds me about like, what's the point of studying history? And one of the most important things that I learned from studying history is that we can see how people did things in the past and we can step back and realize that the way we do things now is not the way things have to be. So I was looking at the Encyclopedia of Time in preparing for this conversation. And I learned that humans across world history have had all kinds of different ways of measuring the passage of time. In ancient Egypt, for example, they used hours But in contrast to the way we think about hours, the length of each hour was different. It was different at day and it was different at night and it was different by the season. And so for me, thinking about daylight saving is kind of liberating because it means that what we do now doesn't have to be the way things are. So when I think about this, Mallory, I look back and I think, okay, it's really good to have a system of unified time. It's really good that trains don't crash. It's good that we know when to show up for worship. Like if they say come at 10 o'clock, you can know when 10 o'clock is. If you're missing somebody who's coming home, it's good to know when to be able to expect them home. But the, like the benefits of having timekeeping doesn't mean that we need to organize our whole lives around time. I, I asked myself the question, should time serve us or should we be time servant? And so when I think about daylight saving, it's not so much about like, should we have permanent daylight saving or not? It's like, well, it allows me to ask questions about, you know, should we organize work and school around these arbitrary designations instead of around human biology? What if we set up work and school in a way that let us pick schedules that work with our bodies? That would make the whole debate about daylight saving immaterial. We wouldn't need to change the clock to maximize how much access people get to the sun because they will already be scheduling their bodies around that access to the sun. So I guess what I would say is that standard time and daylight saving, neither of them is more natural than say the QWERTY keyboard. It's just what we're used to using, but it doesn't have to be that way. 
I really appreciate that reflection, Amanda, and I really appreciate you being here today on Lake Effect. Thank you. Thank you so much, Mallory. That was fun, fun research and a fun conversation. Amanda Seligman is a professor of history and urban studies at UWM. She spoke with Lake Effect's Mallory Chang last year. And we want to hear your story ideas for Lake Effect. If you have an idea for an interview or a conversation that you'd like to hear on the show, give our community connection line a call. The number is 414-251-8970. You can also submit your ideas at wuwm.com slash lakeeffect. Coming up, the future of a children's bookstore that focuses on BIPOC children is unclear after the owner took another job. We'll hear from her next on Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. This is Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM. I'm Joy Powers. Rooted MKE is a children's bookstore and literacy center that features books written or illustrated by people of color, often depicting protagonists of color. The store offers tutoring services, exploration classes, and events where families can read and eat together. Ashley Valentine opened the store around this time last year, but earlier this month she posted on social media that she's taken a full-time job outside of the business. She said that operating the store has become a financial and mental burden, and right now the future of the store is unclear. Last year, Lake Effect's Mallory Chang visited Valentine and her baby, who you'll hear, at Rooted MKE. Here's that conversation. Before you were the owner of Rooted MKE, you were an educator at Milwaukee Public Schools, and you were also a STEM director as well. Your whole career up to this point has been in education. Um, And I'm just curious, why did you want to open Rooted MKE? I have a passion for education, and I appreciate supporting kids through experiences and just learning um, and exploring in safe spaces. So I really appreciated doing that as a teacher, but I felt like in the classroom, you don't really have a lot of time for Mm -hmm. exploration and you can't do those things slowly and not necessarily intentionally either if there are different objectives that you have to meet as a classroom teacher. So I wanted to step away from that and take out all of the other factors that you can't control as a classroom teacher and be able to um, offer experiences to kids in a really intimate space. I don't want people to take away that the space is exclusively for BIPOC families, although it is designed to be a safe space for BIPOC families and a place to nurture their ability to speak boldly and like share their own stories and explore BIPOC characters in multifaceted ways. Someone who is who doesn't identify as BIPOC, so a white person, can come in and also find titles that resonate with them and resonate with their families. And I think it also offers a unique opportunity for white people to see BIPOC characters in a diverse range. BIPOC characters are not always sad or going to jail or a criminal. They shouldn't always be identified in disparaging ways. They're just as nuanced as any other character in a book, so it's important to also expose your family and your children to the characters as well because a black or brown person doesn't look 
any singular way, and it's important to recognize that and spotlight that with your children as well. It's so lovely to be here with Ashra and also to be here in this space that is child-centered. And what I really love, in addition to being a children's bookstore, it's also an exploration space. You can hear, for the listeners, you can hear Ashra playing with little bowls on the table. But it's an exploration space and a tutoring center. So why that idea to combine a bookstore with a maker-creative space and tutoring space? The bookstore, it supports a passion for literacy and wanting to expose kids and families to a wide range of stories that they don't always get a chance to see when you go to a more traditional bookstore. And I thought it was important to kind of create a full circle opportunity. Um, We can't assume that because a book is written for a kid that they're able to access it or that they have all of the foundational skills to be able to read it and truly tap into what the author is trying to convey. So I wanted to make sure to offer opportunities to support literacy. A bookstore is kind of like a fun thing that you do with your kids, maybe a destination, but I wanted it to be a space that was truly centered around literacy and supporting literacy development. Um, So I thought that tying in the tutoring component was important to make sure that kids truly are able to understand the messages that are conveyed to them in the different books by the different authors. And then the exploration space as another opportunity to think more deeply about a theme or an idea conveyed in a book and give them the chance to use hands-on strategies to explore comprehension and literacy themes as well. On Ruta MKE's website too, there's a bunch of different family-oriented events and experiences that really involve parents and involve guardians and involve entire families across generations at the bookstore and to really explore and be creative with each other. How um, do you envision this bookstore and this space as a part of the neighborhood that you're in? Why did you choose to be on Vliet Street? Sure. I think that the bookstore, I would like it to be a safe space to explore themes or topics um, that might be a little tough or to be able to support your family and having a conversation about what you're reading. I think often you buy something and like in the world of fast everything, you buy a book and you read the book and then you may not visit that book again and then you're on to the next thing that your kid wants to do. So I hope to encourage families to spend a little bit more time on the books and the ideas And West Valley Street, I feel like, is perfect because it's really close to Wauwatosa. Um, It's right across the street from Milwaukee Public School Central Office where there are lots of educators and lots of families in and out of the space visiting for maybe they need support, maybe they're enrolling their kids in a program or in a school. So I think it's in a great central location to families in Milwaukee as well as families in the surrounding areas. Every day I see Lots of parents walking around with their kids, peeking into the store, playing with the decals on the window. So I think it's a great opportunity for us to connect with kind of all of the different types of families that live in the area as well and welcome them into the space. 
tell me a little bit about your journey to solidifying and opening the space. I know that you were working with the Hmong Wisconsin Chamber of Commerce and you had your grand opening very recently of the space. What led up to making sure that this place was a safe and welcoming permanent home and that the idea that you wanted to be here for the long run? When I saw the space in, I toured the space in July. I wasn't even touring the space with the intention of opening a store here. I started to envision it like as I was touring it, but still in like the dream stage. And my husband really prompted me to go and like move on it instead of continuing to kind of passively plan. And then from there, I think all of the other pieces of what I needed to do that I hadn't necessarily done, I had to get into action with those things. So I met with the African American Chamber initially for business funding because although I had funds available and saved up, I didn't have what was needed to renovate the space and have like a stable amount of working capital. Um, so the African American Chamber actually connected me with the Hmong Chamber. And then from there, I was able to continue the journey of like tightening up my financials and making sure I had everything that I needed in order to advance with a small business loan with the Hmong Chamber as well. I love that collaboration amongst the chambers. What do you hope that Rooted reimagines in Milwaukee through this space? What do you hope you're able to change and to build? I think through the pandemic, we've learned like socially that there are some things that must change and can't go back to the way that they were. And I think Rooted is one of the pieces of like creating a positive change from from what existed before. I know there are other um, independent BIPOC bookstores that are either online or like a physical store in the Milwaukee area. Um, but I think what we're offering is something unique because it's catered specifically to children and then trying to support the whole child through academic enrichment and support. And we know that during the pandemic, um, specifically minority students struggled to be able to access education in a remote setting and make academic gains. Um, so we were seeing a lot of academic learning loss that was even greater than the academic learning loss we knew existed pre-pandemic. Um, so I think we have a unique opportunity to kind of meet families where they are and support them on their academic and developmental journey for their children in a safe space, kind of curated with their children in mind. And though we have lots of awesome places for kids in Milwaukee, um, in, in my parenting experience, I haven't got to experience spaces where I didn't feel like I was one of a few of the minority parents that were there, so I have to kind of represent for everyone that is my race. Here, um, I wanted to make sure to create a space where parents don't necessarily feel that way, and you're in a space where there are other BIPOC parents, and you can just kind of breathe and release and let your child be a child without feeling like, oh my God, these people are going to think that we are this way because you're the only one. Ashley Valentine is the owner of Rooted MKE, and you also heard from her young daughter in the conversation. They both spoke with Lake Effect's Mallory Chang last year, not long after the store first opened. 
And that wraps up today's show. Thank you so much for being here with us. I'm Joy Powers. If you missed any of today's conversations, or if you'd like to take Lake Effect on the go, download our podcast. Search for Lake Effect wherever you get your podcasts to listen to all of our shows on demand. Tomorrow on Lake Effect, we'll bring you a special Women's History Month edition of the show, where we'll talk about some notable Milwaukee women, including a woman who formed a group to fight the Nazi regime and became the only American civilian woman executed on direct orders from Adolf Hitler. That's tomorrow at noon, right here on Lake Effect, on listener-supported 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR.